Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. A desire to bring the truth to the forefront and a refusal to back down. The Roy Green Show continues. The ongoing story of Tommy Robinson in the next half hour, the uh, the British founder of the uh, English Defense League and uh, sometime journalist who has been imprisoned, and uh, there have been marches and protests in the UK against the imprisonment of Tommy Robinson. There's concern that he uh, may lose his life in prison as prison gangs will will focus on him, and it has to do with the rape gangs that uh, exist in the UK. We'll have that story. I'm not I'm not totally conversant with Mr. Robinson's story, but we're going to be joined by uh, Gerard Batten. He's a member of the European Parliament for London and the UK Independence Party. Mr. Batten knows Tommy Robinson personally and has been interviewed by him. I'll talk now to uh, Alfredo Corchado. First time I spoke with Alfredo was probably, I don't know, maybe Eight years ago, nine years ago, he's a correspondent for the Dallas Morning News, and the stories that you shared with me, Alfredo, were absolutely blood-chilling about the uh, your coverage, your reporting on the Mexican drug cartels and the threats to your life, including a phone call warning you that somebody was going to die, a reporter was going to die in the next 24 hours, and that was probably going to be you. Good to talk to you again. Great to be with you again, Roy. That was a while ago, and uh, unfortunately, the... Uh uh, the violence continues in Mexico. They just had one of the worst, so if not the worst year, that's uh, 2017, and now the year has started is uh, even worse than the previous year. So things have not gotten any better since, since we first spoke. And and we're talking about more than 100,000 people who have lost their lives due to that violence. Well, it depends on the, on, on the stats that you're looking at. Uh, since 2006, when the drug war officially started, uh, a number now is more closer to 200,000 people. Wow. Wow. Uh, I, w- I want to talk to you about your book, but if I could, uh, there's one story that I remember, and I, I think you told me, about sitting in a restaurant and somebody sent a drink to your table. Is, was that you? Yes. This was in uh, Laredo, Texas, which is on the U.S. side of the border, and which makes the story even more chilling. Uh, we were covering the set at the time the paramilitary group right on the U.S.-Mexico border, and they were obviously ravaging the whole area. I was reporting on them, trying to follow the money, trying to follow who the leaders were, and sitting at a at a place, and then uh, they just sent over a tequila and said, you know, courtesy of these men who were there uh, to try to 
kidnap us, or I was with another, with two other journalists. Uh, but the message was clear. You know, we, we're not we're not happy with what you're doing, what you're probing, the questions you're asking. And 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 when they say when they do something, happen. I'm sorry. I said, fortunately, it, uh, they they didn't kidnap. But the message is very clear. The message was clear. And when these people don't joke around, do they? No, they don't joke around. I mean, any I think any time you have a, a crackdown on the border, um, whether it's immigration or or drugs, uh, it it really bolsters the, the drug cartels. I mean, they become that much more powerful. Not just drug cartels, but really organized crime. I, I've heard that the drug cartels, if you were to take them as one unit, if you were to put them all together as one unit, they would be capable of, or maybe even the way it's structured now, capable of challenging the federal government of Mexico. Is that true? That is true. I mean, that's been the long-standing I guess conviction from a lot of people that uh, they've grown so big, so powerful, uh, and, and more than anything, it's because of the level of corruption, the impunity. I mean, 95, 96 percent of all crimes are never really punished. So you have this vast corruption within the government. Sometimes people say it's really the government that's behind the cartels, and vice versa. Now, something has happened. Uh, I mean, I think one of the reasons why we're also seeing a lot more violence and new violence is that the cartels have been splintered. So you have, where in the past you had maybe six, eight major organizations, now you have as many as 400 smaller criminal groups, uh, and that creates much more chaos in throughout parts of, of Mexico. They say that's normal. I mean, that's something that we saw in Colombia, uh, and that uh, long-term, hopefully, things will get better. But for now, uh, as I said, I mean, the, the violence has been has been worse than, than, than what I saw when I was in the, in the heart of it, covering that. So how cheap is life on the border? Uh, well, it depends. I mean, if you're on the Mexican side, it's, it's, it's pretty cheap. I mean, uh, one of the most startling statistics that I've seen is that the majority, the vast majority of the people kill are under the age of 30. I mean, we're talking about you know, many, many young people. And then you also have the whole issue of the number of people disappear. That's a number that we really don't even know how, you know, someday there'll be, and, and even now, I mean, you have human rights activists who are looking throughout the country for, for grave sites of, of the disappear. Uh, on the U.S. side, it's, uh, it's, it feels, I think, some of the most safest regions, ironically, are on the U.S. side of the border. Really, and where would that be? Would that be Arizona, uh, Texas? That would be just you know just about any any border community. You pick them. You go to Laredo, Texas, one of the safest, and then across the border is Nuevo Laredo. This continues to be uh, one of the most dangerous. The same thing with Ciudad Juarez, the Mexican side, El Paso, one of the safest on the U.S. side. What about this this whole wall issue, Alfredo? How do you um, how, how do you assess? President Trump's declaration that there is going to be a great, big, beautiful wall and Mexico is going to pay for it? Well, Mexico has made it very clear they're not going to pay for it. Um, the government from day one has been clear on that. Maybe not as clear as it should have been from the beginning, uh, but it, lately, they, you know, they, anytime there's a wall, anytime President Trump comes out with that, they're, they say, you know, we're not paying for it. I, I think, you know, as a border resident, uh, it's obviously troubling, uh, but also as a border resident, you kind of get used to becoming 
the piñata, if you will. I mean, it, if it helps a U.S. politician, uh, you know, help their poll numbers go up, you you scapegoat the border, you scapegoat the immigrants. And that's something that I try to get into this new book, Homeland, mm-hmm. is, is how you become a punching bag uh, for, for the government. So what President Trump is doing, it's, it's not surprising, but I think he's taking it to a, a, a new level. And it's it's a reflection of the fear uh, among a lot of Americans that they've lost their country, when in reality immigrants have been very, very key in contributing to to the rise to making America a great country. Which, which you know, I think uh, there's a lot of immigrants today who kind of feel like, where is the gratitude? Where is the uh, the sense that we're all in this together? That this is a country of immigrants. I just want to read a few lines uh, from the Bloomsbury Review of your book, and we'll take a break and we'll talk about it. Um, the book opens with a scene from the winter of 1987 inside a newly opened Mexican restaurant where Corchado, then a young reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and his human rights activist friend Primo strike up a conversation about what it means to be Mexican-American with the restaurant owner David Suro Pinera and Ken Trujillo, Uh, another patron who was raised in New Mexico. That conversation has lasted more than 30 years, Corchado writes. The perspectives of these men in the decades since provide the framework for Corchado's book as each man seeks a connection to his heritage through his life in America. The book is titled Homelands, Four People, Two Countries, and the Fate of the Great Mexican-American Migration by Alfredo Corchado. We'll talk more with Alfredo about the book and about borders and about the issues we've been talking about today. It's been part of the show today. Don't go away. His bark is worse than his bite. This is the Roy Green Show. Alfredo Corchado is the recipient of a very prestigious award for courage in journalism. I just want to read a little more about his book, Homelands, and then we'll talk to him about it. Uh, Four Friends, Two Countries, and the Fate of the Great Mexican-American Migration. Quote, this personal moving tale illuminates the very heart of the polarizing immigration debate that is roiling America today. That's by David Axelrod, director of the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, former senior advisor, to Barack Obama, author and CNN senior political commentator. In Alfred Corchado's, Alfredo's, Corchado's Midnight in Mexico, he focused on the Mexican drug war and provided a unique binational perspective on the two countries he calls home, wrote the San Francisco Chronicle. It was praised as electrifying the Washington Post, riveting by the San Francisco Chronicle, and a raw, compelling read by the Miami Herald. Now, with the same vantage point, Corchado tackles one of the most, one of modern America's most profound transformations, the time during which Mexican-Americans swelled to become our largest single minority, changing the color, economy, and culture of America itself. In Homelands, Four Friends, Two Countries, and the Fate of the Great Mexican-American Migration. So, Alfredo, four friends. You met in, uh, in that restaurant in 1987, and you started the story, and David uh, developed his own brand of tequila. Uh, your friend Ken ran for the mayor's job in Philadelphia. 
and is a successful lawyer, and Primo is still fighting for human rights causes, and you have this incredible story of your own of living on the border and experiencing the, the life and the violence and the reality of the drug cartels. So how does this all come together? Talk to us about how you put this book together, because it must have been a labor of love and a labor of discovery. It was. Uh, it, it was the... You know, I always wanted to somehow find a way to pay homage to the millions of, of immigrants, uh, people I grew up with. I mean, I left Mexico when I was at the age of six, grew up in California in the San Joaquin Valley. And so you have this uh, front row seat to the biggest immigration shift in modern U.S. history, um, you know, where millions of immigrants from all over the world, but particularly from, from Mexico, sort of come in and, and reshape parts of the U.S. Um, I was in Philadelphia, had just arrived working at, at a job with the Wall Street Journal, and I was incredibly homesick. Uh, I met Primitivo, and I thought, this, this is the only Mexican I will ever find in Philadelphia. And so we, you know, we, we sort of uh, were very, very, I guess, uh, very guarded of one another, you know, uh, we hear that there's a restaurant called Tequilas, and we thought maybe it's a private chain, but what the heck? You know, what do we have to lose? And on that same wintry night, uh, come together and meet two other people. And it's a book about friendship. Uh, you know, you, you have a friendship for 30 years, and what has happened to the United States in those 30 years? So you try to put that together. In many ways, uh, three of us, or even the four of us, uh, have led binational lives where Increasingly, because of, of policies like uh, NAFTA, you have uh, economic integration. So it leads you to live life on both sides of the border. And so I, I, I try to delve into what it is today. You know, there's, there's this whole theory of the melting pot, but it's really about diversity and, and people feeling comfortable uh, with their diverse backgrounds to celebrate. The, you know, the home they left and the home they now call home, uh, homeland, uh, at a very difficult time today. I mean, this is not, uh, this is not, not, not 1987. It's a, it's a very different reality, you say, that, as you well know. Well, we do, because in this country we have a situation where our border is now a topic of great discussion because it's being, uh, it's being, I, I guess the word is not, respected properly, or at least the law isn't being applied appropriately, because people are entering Canada um, illegally, and the government isn't really doing anything about it, where people, we've said before, I've said, people who really require Canada's assistance uh, are living in countries they can't get out of, and so we could be providing them with transport here for people who really need it, and bring them to Canada, and, and, and provide them with a hand up, and create that kind of reality, which is which seems to me uh, immigrants are quite capable of give them a little hand up and they'll create their own worlds, their own reality. The, the question then becomes national loyalty. Is there a divided loyalty that's developing in the United States? Is it divided based on race? Is it divided based on language, on religion? Or are we just misinterpreting when we look at the United States? I think that question has been raised for generations. I mean, I think it's a question of, I'm sure a lot of Germans heard, of the Irish heard, the Italians heard, you know, divided loyalties. And in the end, you just, as an immigrant, you want to contribute to this country. And I know my parents, I know 
uh, my friends, myself. I mean, we we've uh, we love this country, we love the United States, and 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 try to do whatever we can to to make it a better place. I, I think there is a sense in 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 parts of the country that uh, the nation they knew is being lost, and I think that's really what the wall represents. You know, it's a way of saying we don't want you anymore. We want to protect what who we were, what we were. But I think that, that there is a lot of um, uh, maybe not. I don't want to say miscommunication. There's just uh, a, a lot of fear, and it's, you know these are the pe- these are the same people who, who will embrace your your uh, your food, your cuisine, uh, your traditions, who you are, but not really who you who you are as a person. I mean, there's that this disconnect, and uh, and I'm hope I, I'm hopeful that. A book like Homelands can contribute to the education of uh, of who really who really are the people and, and and what we are as a country. Can you share with us a moment in the book that really exemplifies that you and your three friends uh, something that a story that just tells that story? You know, towards the end of the book, we right after the uh, 2016 election, there was a sense of. Uh, this is not the United States that we thought we lived in. And there was a sense of, is it too late to go back to Mexico? Um, David uh, ended up getting his own apartment in Guadalajara. I mean, he was running his business, but he thought, you know what? Uh, I, I, need a, I need a plan B. As a, as a Mexico correspondent, I, uh, I was now teaching at ASU, at Arizona State University, and I thought, well, maybe I, maybe I also want to go to back, back to Mexico and maybe live in my apartment and become a correspondent. I did uh, go back to reporting. I still have my apartment in Mexico City. But then you realize that at this, at this symbolically, at this restaurant, Tequila, we had already built our own, our own little Mexico, a Mexico that it had been embraced by Americans. And so you realize, you know, like these migratory birds, you can't really pick one over the other. I mean, you belong to both sides of the border. Home is on both sides. Well said. Uh, your story is really remarkable, really remarkable. Your personal story, your personal experience, and I haven't read it yet, but I'm looking forward to reading Homelands, Four Friends, Two Countries, and The Fate of the Great Mexican-American Migration. Uh, I hope you stay safe. I, I know you're still keeping a close eye on what's going on on the border, and I would imagine uh, you won't have filed your last story on on what's going on as far as those realities are concerned. Alfredo, thank you. I hope this to talk is, uh, to you again. I was going to say, Roy, it's been a difficult year for journalists in Mexico. I mean, we, we've had six journalists killed this year, but thank you for, uh, for your good wishes. Uh, the book uh, is launched tomorrow, and it will also be available in Canada, and I do hope to uh, get to Canada soon. All right. Thank well, you so much. Yeah, we'll talk again. There's Alfredo Corchado, and his book is Homelands. And he's had his life threatened on a number of occasions by um, drug cartels because of the coverage he was providing. When we come back, the story of Tommy Robinson from a man who knows him and was interviewed by him. Don't go away. <laughs> 